You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. So welcome and thank you for joining us today for another Lozano Smith podcast. I'm your host, Sloan Simmons, a partner out of Lozano Smith's Sacramento office. I'm very lucky to be joined today by two colleagues, one out of our Fresno office, James Sanchez, 30 years of practice in the municipal law area, including city attorney time with the city of Sacramento and Salinas, as well as Fresno, uh, additional time as deputy county counsel for the county of Fresno. Jim has done it all for municipalities, cities and counties over the years. Um, I'd note one highlight, Jim, is some of your work there with Sacramento on on the half billion dollar Golden One Center entertainment complex in downtown Sac that, that as I peer out my window is a shining example of successful municipal law work. Uh, Ryan Tung out of our Walnut Creek office, one of our governance co-practice group leaders, an excellent attorney in governance, student issues and charter schools. So a real pleasure to have both of you here today. And we're gonna talk about an issue that is certainly in the wheelhouse of both of you and as is often the case on these podcasts, far afield from my area of expertise. So we're gonna talk about all the buzz and issues uh, in relation to elections, as well as you know, public agencies facing questions or demands under the CVRA. So Ryan, why don't I start with you? What is the CVRA and why is it such a hot topic? Yeah, thank you Sloan and thank you for having me today. So the CVRA is what's known as the California Voting Rights Act. So since their inception, most public agencies and local governments in California elect their public officials using what's known as an at-large method of election. In an at-large method of election, candidates can live anywhere within the jurisdictional boundaries of the city or district or county. And anyone, any registered voter in that jurisdictional boundary can vote for any member on that board or council. So, for example, if you have a school board with five members, all five board members can live anywhere within the school district, and the voters can vote for all five seats on that board. Now, in the early 2000s, the California legislature expressed some concern that that at-large method of election negatively impacted the ability of minority groups to influence those local elections. So as a result, the California legislature passed what's now referred to as the CVRA. CVRA as a baseline is one of the most stringent voting rights act in the nation, and it prohibits those at-large elections that result in what's known as racially polarized voting. In, In general terms, if those minority groups cannot influence elections the way that it's deemed that they should, then those at-large elections have deemed to be violative of the California Voting Rights Act. So so the CVRA was written in a way to promote an alternative type of election system known as by-district or by-trustee area elections. In by-trustee area elections, public agency is divided into trustee areas Take the school board example. So if there's five board members, break it up into five trustee areas or districts. Trustees must reside within one of those five trustee areas. 
and are only voted on by the voters within those trustee areas. Ryan, does this, how wide in reach is this? Are we, are there particular public agencies that are impacted, but not others, or is it more sweeping? So this is uh, very wide sweeping. So cities, counties, school district, county offices of education, special districts, fire districts, hospital districts. So it's really touching on most of our uh, local governments throughout California. Well, Jim, so we have this uh, very extensive law um, with obviously a, a very valuable intent behind it that's sweeping in nature. Can you talk about how, how this uh, lands on the plate of our public agencies in terms of potential litigation and demand letters? Yeah, Sloan. So again, thank you for having me this this afternoon. I, I think for us, the issue is what makes it such a hot topic. And as Ryan was explaining, it goes to the voice of the people, a representation, uh, special interest groups, uh, potential racial polarization. All of those play into the uh, potential for challenge in uh, the district, city, or uh, other governmental entity. The demand letter process that comes into play is when special interest groups uh, determine there is a concern within a governmental entity. They identify that concern, uh, lack of representation with at-large voting. They demand that there be a process uh, to walk through, similar to what Ryan just described in terms of the uh, redistricting process. Once these letters are received and the entity is on notice, it starts a timeline within which the agency has to make a decision uh, to either litigate this, defend their at-large district uh, status, or go through a process to redistrict to change that process. This timeline is critical, and uh, to date, we have not found any... um, public agencies uh, within the state of California that have successfully challenged uh, a request or a demand to uh, go from an at-large district to a uh, district uh, elected process. And so typically we'll find that agencies will move towards uh, a process uh, that will transition them from the at-large uh, to uh, the by-district elections. Jim, a couple of questions for me there. Uh, on one hand, the timeline, is there a designated uh, you know, statutory timeline by which action needs to be taken? And is it, is it expeditious in nature or can, can it be fairly attenuated? Jim or Ryan, I mean, how, how quick is that timeline? And then the other question that I have is, so I'm hearing you say no public agency has successfully defended the right to remain at large as opposed to transition to trustee area. Is, is, there, is there, however, in theory, a legal basis which a public agency might argue that it's entitled to remain at large? Or, or is that just not an option? And that's why, that's why we don't have any successful litigation by a public agencies attempting to remain at large as opposed to move to trustee area. If you think it's a subject that maybe we'll talk about here a little later on in our discussion, that's good too. Yes. So to answer the question as to why uh, public agencies have been reticent to 
trying to successfully defend these types of challenges to the at-large uh, voting structures. Public agencies are averse to what they've seen as the low probability of successful defense of at-large election challenges uh, for a number of reasons. Um, these reasons include the costs associated with the defense, the complexities of the defense, and the practical realities of taking a position that some could view as against the uh, concept of the one person, one vote principles, that there, there isn't a background history of r- racially polarized uh, voting or the inability of racial groups or other recognized communities of interest to be represented. That process is a very involved process and a very expensive process. And from the standpoint of practicalities, uh, the costs of defending that and the likelihood of questions coming up as the experts uh, lay out their cases on behalf of an at-large election has just led to uh, the practical decision to move forward with the by-district elections. There was one community uh, that went forward and spent, I believe it was the uh, city of Santa Monica, that went forward and spent a significant amount of money. We're talking uh, over a million dollars in their litigation efforts. And ultimately, um, they did not get the result that they were hoping for. Their, their defense was not one that a court would recognize as overcoming their burden to demonstrate that their at-large elections had basically uh, complied with the one person, one vote. Um, so for, for those practical reasons and expenses, uh, public entities have not have not moved forward with defending their at-large uh, elections. Ryan, Ryan, anything to add there? And I, I'd also be interested from you kind of to talk about how does that transition process look? Yeah. Um, and one thing to add to uh, the city of Santa Monica case that you mentioned, that's been a hot topic of conversation during these CBRA discussions. Um, as Jim said, in, in that case, the trial court ruled against the city of Santa Monica, saying that their methods of election did violate the CBRA. Um, and one of those practical concerns is not only did the city have to pay their own attorney's fees, there was a trial court order, I believe, ordering $22 million in fee shifting to be paid to the plaintiffs who brought that. Um, now, that matter is actually, it did get appealed, and then it's now actually in front of the California Supreme Court. So that's one that we are... Oh, it is. Yeah, that we are, we're, we're focusing on, you know, it's the California Supreme Court. So it's been there for a little bit. We don't know exactly when it's going to be heard, but it's one that we're keeping an eye on. Ryan, did the Court of Appeal affirm the trial, trial court ruling? The Court of Appeal actually reversed. And so they reversed, and that's the, the first court of appeal decision that we're aware of that came out and said, no, the city's method of election did not violate the CBRA, but it was immediately depublished and it's it's now being heavily briefed um, I, I bet. in front of the Supreme Court. Yeah. Now, that certainly seems like, I assume for, for both you and Jim and our other governance practice group and municipal practice group members, a, a case that you're watching very, very closely, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. So, Ryan, let's talk about how does that transition process 
look in terms of adopting by trustee, trustee area elections, moving away from the at-large model? Yeah, as Jim mentioned, the process starts one of two ways. It either starts with what we call a demand letter, which is a letter from one of those interest groups or um, a plaintiff or a plaintiff's attorney demanding a transition to by district or by trustee area elections. Or some public agencies are sort of doing it uh, of their own initiative to sort of get ahead of the process. Once you receive that demand letter, there is some built-in safe harbors to get this process done within a set period of time and not actually face litigation. So once you receive that demand letter, you have 45 days to start the process. And that process can get started by adopting what's known as an intent resolution. And that's simply a resolution that says, hey, we recognize this, we're gonna move forward and decide we're gonna make that transition to by trustee or by district elections. From there, there's a statutory process that you have to go through. It's a statutory process that all public entities will have to go through under this. Um, and that is you have a 90-day period where you'll be provided that extra safe harbor. And under that 90-day period, you have to hold five public hearings on your way to adopting by trustee area elections, which will include adopting a map of what those trustee areas will look like. So the intensive process really comes into those five public hearings where the board or the council is really working on bringing in a demographer who will explain what they're looking for when drawing these maps and then getting public input on what should these trustee areas actually look like. So it's a, it's a process that usually can get done under 90 days, but it is one that takes a lot of time and focus from the team of the public entity. Is there anything you need? Sloan, I, I, oh, go ahead, Jim, please. I would just add uh, in this process, it, it, it is an interactive process. Most of the entities that I've worked with have created websites where the public can introduce uh, maps into the consideration of the public entity. But that interactive process is, is a very sensitive walk that the entity has to undertake to ensure transparency, interaction of the public, and ultimately coming into a defensible product once the maps are adopted. Gentlemen, is there is there any unique uh, issues that come into play for our um, for any of the public agencies that have to do this process, whether it's you know school districts as opposed to cities or community college districts? And then I'm also curious how the the redistricting requirement in terms of every 10 years, how that interacts with this process more broadly. Yeah, so the education code um, actually requires school districts that are K-12 and community college districts to take extra steps that cities and county boards are not required to. So under the old vestiges of the education code, school districts and community college districts do not have the ultimate authority to finalize and implement a trustee area map plan. For K-12 school districts, that falls on the County Committee on School District Organization, which is oftentimes the county board. So what happens is a school district will complete that five hearing process, adopt a proposal, and that proposal will go to the county committee for a hearing and hopefully approval. Now, Community college districts have two avenues that they can go. One is they can go through that 
county committee process as well, but they also have an extra option of going to the Board of Governors for approval. Well, is there, has there ever been discussion like why still keep those unique pieces in place? I mean, what, is there, does it cause complications independent from another uh, sequence in what needs to be done or, or, or is it looked at as serving a particular purpose that everyone understands is okay, it's fine, we do it this way because it serves that purpose? So for the last five years or so, there has been a lot of rumblings of, hey, how can we make this process smoother as well as come in line with the purposes of the California Voting Rights Act? Um, there has been some push in the legislature to try to get that county committee approval moved or reduced. There has been no luck, to my understanding, of that push. Um, the, the big change that happened at the beginning of this year was previously for K-12 school districts, there was actually an extra step. So school districts would have to adopt their proposal, the county committee would have to approve, and that approval would actually have to go to the voters for approval as well. Now, because of the threat of being under litigation for many of these school districts, um, and you're under that tight 90-day window, most school districts sought a waiver of that final election requirement from the State Board of Education. State Board of Education was recognizing, we're granting all of these, and it's just becoming sort of an administrative piece. So they made a big push, um, and that new legislation said it's, you don't require voter approval anymore, but we still do require county committee approval. Got it. So, Jim, I, I want to ask you, because I, I know that as we record this podcast, we're entering into a time period where really districts and counties and cities have gone through this process, this transition process. And now really what we're talking about is a period of time where we're looking toward implementation and post-transition efforts that haven't occurred. But maybe, Ryan, if you could talk about how the 10-year the kind of timeline is at play in general and how it has led to where we are at present. And then, Jim, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on where we go now or where our cities and counties and other boards and districts go now, now that they're kind of in a, in a post-transition phase. Yeah, and this is um, something that every public agency in California that has by-district or by-trustee area elections is required to do what we call redistricting. And so every 10 years when the new federal census comes out, the public entity has to review their trustee areas to make sure that they're population balanced. So the idea there is trying to make sure that we don't violate the one person, one vote rule. So someone in trustee area one has the same voting power as someone in trustee area three. So that process is something that happens every 10 years uh, for school districts. K-12 to community college districts, there's very little guidance on what public hearing, what types of outreach needs to be done. So um, school districts and community college districts kind of have been developing those processes themselves, um, where for cities and boards of supervisors, there is a very detailed and intense process that has been provided by the legislature, which requires for hearings and a bunch of outreach as well. So that's something that happens within that tight window after every federal census comes out after 10 years. So as Sloan, Sloan described that process and, and Ryan walked us through um, what 
each of the entities have to look and walk through, uh, and obviously those being very intense processes with their communities and special interest groups and so forth. You then have entities walking through a post-transition time. And it's very important for the staff and others serving the entities to keep, keep an eye on the big picture context of what's playing out. While each entity has moved through a very challenging transition process, they are still at their core required to basically act as a legislative entity with one legislative body, even though there may have been uh, elections that occurred with within the legislative jurisdiction, uh, electing uh, a number of individuals by district. The legislative body continues to act as one legislative body, and it continues to have the same legal responsibilities to serve the entire district and uh, to have the staff providing service to that legislative body, even though it's elected by district. And while you may have unique instances of particular controversy that can arise in that new structure, the new paradigm of uh, district elections, you will have uh, ultimately the legislative body or the board going through a decision-making process, arriving at a majority decision for what's best for the entire entity, the entire school district, the entire city, uh, county, or whatever the legal entity is. But the nuance and the best practices in walking through this time is to remember you are still under the same legal obligations that you were before the transition time. And that is to make decisions based on the best interests of the entire entity that's being represented. This would require things like clear communication uh, by the staff to all of the elected members, whether it's city council members, uh, board district members, that there would be no surprises. You want to ensure that the officers who are elected by the district have the information as to what controversial uh, issues are occurring within their district. And good practice is to give deference to those individuals so that they have um, the full information to respond to uh, their district constituents. But by the same token, the staff needs to make sure that that same information is given to the full body of decision makers. Um, I have seen in cities, for example, that have gone through this kind of process, if there is a land use issue that's a particular challenge uh, within a given council district, the council member is, of that district is made aware um, so that there aren't surprises to that council member and there's deference given to that council member when the item comes before the city council body as a whole. But ultimately, even after those practices are followed, the decision by the majority uh, of the body is made on behalf of factors that affect the entire jurisdiction, not just the district. Uh, that way you avoid creating uh, district fiefdoms, uh, the elected individuals still have that fiduciary obligation to decide 
what's best for the entire district. Um, other areas where uh, the transition process becomes particularly sensitive can be in the areas of budgeting, where um, some entities may consider going at depth with district-specific budgets as opposed to having entity-wide policies that are uh, considered for purposes of the budgeting uh, for the entity. Ultimately, uh, there have been formal attempts at instituting best practices. Uh, For example, the city of Santa Rosa, as they were going through this kind of redistricting process, uh, felt that they were so concerned about the potential impacts of having by-district decisions made as opposed to citywide decisions. They adopted a formal resolution by the city council um, indicating that they will, at the end of the at-large process and when they move into the by-district elections, they will continue uh, to make decisions based on a citywide consideration, not simply decisions made uh, and driven by the given district that uh, comes out of the city council districting process. So those are some of the best practices that that entities have used to try and capture uh, how to best uh, move through this transition, make it more smooth for uh, their constituents. Ryan, anything to add on that? Thank you, Jim. Yeah, um, that avoidance of um, what's often referred to as balkanization is often a hot topic um, when going through this transition process. And as Jim talked about, once you have transitioned, to really make sure that you keep that jurisdiction-wide model of every member on the board or on the council represents everyone um, within the jurisdiction. Um, school districts have taken an interesting approach where uh, they've really tr- many school districts we've worked with have tried to address this during the map development process itself um, by really being cognizant of how we're drawing those trusty area lines. So for example, One of the criteria that I've seen for implementing maps is making sure that trustee areas cross over attendance boundaries. So it's not like my, I have this one school and that's who I represent. It's, you know, me and my colleague in area two and three all represent this one school as well as these other schools that are within my attendance boundaries. So some of that uh, attempts to create and and maintain uh, a united board and council can be done through the mapping process. Gentlemen, uh, we at Lozana Smith are very lucky to have you two on our team and the, the great wealth of expertise you guys have in many areas, but this in particular. I know both of you have been really, really busy on this subject, um, especially over the past year and leading into the beginning of this year, shepherding dozens and dozens of clients through this process. So I know our clients too are also lucky to have you two at the helm and advising them in these areas. Great discussion. Uh, and I like the ones the best that I don't know much about. And, and I've learned a lot today, as I'm sure our listeners have. So thank you, Jim. Thank you, Ryan. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another Lozano Smith podcast. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com forward slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today, as well as a whole range of other podcasts and topics. So register if you haven't yet so you don't miss an episode. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Slim. Thank you. 
have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard. Thank you.